Hey friends, before the show I'd like to plug the store of our friends at Terracotta Distribution. At their storefront, shop.terracottadistribution.com, you'll find a wide range of Asian DVDs and Blu-rays from Kim Kidak to Jackie Chan, from Ho Shao Shen to Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell, aka the Japanese Evil Dead. This was even put out on a limited run VHS, folks. New titles are being added regularly, and if you go to shop.terracottadistribution.com and enter the discount code POFN. 10 that's p-o-f-n-1-0 this gives podcast on fire network listeners 10 percent off at checkout the discount code is p-o-f-n-10 and visit shop.terracottadistribution.com for more and let's get on with the show Welcome to a podcast on fire on the Wesley's mysterious file and a tale from the east. Our examination of uh, further big screen adventures of the novelist and adventurer Wisely, created by Nick Kwang, continues. And for the moment it actually concludes as well. There's not that many movies out there. Way back in the podcast archive you'll find episodes of the director's series on the movies The Seventh Curse and The Cat by the same director, Nam Nai Choi. We did a prior podcast on fire on The Legend of Wisely and Buried Me High where Sam Hoy and Chin Kalok played Wisely respectively. And now we've reached the success story from 2002 as Andy Lau now takes on the role in Andrew Lau's The Wesley's Mysterious File. Cue uncomfortable silence. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you can, the, 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 the excitement needs so much I've, uh, in the room here that I've stunned my fellow co-host. The success story. <laughs> and I go, what movie did he watch? I watched the same movie. And uh, I can see why, why you guys have been hesitant to uh, even bring up uh, the name of this movie. But... Uh, of course, we'll get to that. Why, why, why is Wesley's Mysterious File such a special film? Anyway, uh, also to finish up the coverage, we take a look at the little-known A Tale from the East from 1990, where the creator of Wisely plays Wisely. So, there you go. A little special angle to it all. My name is Ken B, and with me to conclude this examination of uh, the adventures of uh, Wisely or Wesley is once again the boys who know it all from the East Screen, West Screen podcast. And first of all, uh, we got uh, Paul Fox, live and direct from uh, from Florida, and, and The Closet, the famed closet. Hi, hi. Yes, but no longer in the closet. I, I have a, a nice little office space now, thankfully. Um, but uh, yeah, I, if we do know it all, I would say I know like 10% and uh, Kevin knows 90%. So that's a pretty good ratio. Well, that's why you guys do, do these things uh, to, <laughs> to get a hundred, perfect hundred, right? <laughs> it's perfection all around. And uh, live and direct from Hong Kong swearing at why these old movies aren't properly subtitled is uh, Mr. Kevin Ma. Hi there. Uh, I know nothing, Jon Snow. I know nothing. <laughs> Is that a sort of um, bad or um, uh, unavoidable habit of uh, sitting there reading the English, listening to the Cantonese? That's not right. That's not right. That's not what Andy said. Andy's way better than the English subtitles actually convey. 
Yeah, I mean, I do that for every film now. I, I, I hate it. I hate that habit. But yeah, I do that for pretty much every Chinese film I watch now. Granted, uh, a lot of uh, what happens in the Wesley's Mysterious File is in uh, grand old uh, English. So um, uh, that's uh, we, we didn't need many, uh, that much subtitles uh, for um, for this one in particular. I had no idea that it even was set in America. But I knew of the movie that it was an Andy movie and an Andrew movie and things like that. Special effects, blah, blah, blah. Never saw it back in the day. So this was the first, um, first encounter. You remember a few podcasts back, uh, Paul, where I was like all revved up like, yeah, Andy. Special effects, like how bad could it be? <laughs> yeah. And ninety minutes later, I got my answer. Yeah, we're You're in Switch territory here, so. You're too naive, Ken. Well, uh, well, I'm um, I'm a glutton for punishment, of course. But uh, it made sense to get, um, you know, if we've talked um, the Wesley's a big screen adventures with uh, big stars uh, before, giant fat, somewhere. For that reason alone, it's a. Uh, it's uh, valid to bring on the Wesley's mysterious file because it's uh, it's uh, it's, uh, it's got the man in it, Andy Lau, and uh, it uh, it's not a bad uh, sort of idea, not a bad prospect beforehand. We'll get into it. Um, so, so some brief uh, contact information uh, first of all from me, and then I'll uh, let the guys plug whatever they uh, like. They've got a podcast, they've got businesses and uh, social media stuff and all of that. But for all your podcast on fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Follow the links in the show post or at the top of the website. To get to our social media, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and uh, our iTunes feed is linked to as well. And uh, I write about a variety of uh, Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies on my site, so goodreviews.com. So um, and uh, subscribe, rate, and uh, review us on uh, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you like uh, Hong Kong cinema in a podcast that you're hearing right now. And this particular coverage, would love to hear your thoughts on it. So let's uh, throw over to Paul. I, I know you've been uh, buried in uh, tech trouble, but still, you've got a podcast to plug uh, regardless of uh, how uh, how much you've progressed in your tech trouble of getting uh, East Screen, West Screen uh, 2.0 or 3.0 up and running. Yeah, it is the uh, East Screen, West Screen podcast, and you can find uh, the old files back over at uh, concast.com. And uh, if we're lucky, maybe we'll have some uh, new shows in the future. I mean, maybe this is all fair, but like, aren't you at the point where like, is there any other angle to look at your tech problem to get podcasts up or you or it's just because you're stuck with, so to say, stuck with Mac that uh, you're running into trouble? I would have to go out and buy a PC, I guess, at this point, um, unless I can figure out a software solution, which I haven't been able to do. The alternative I've been thinking is to switch off the podcast platform and just do recordings and throw them up on YouTube. Um, but then you would have nothing, you know, going into iTunes and, and Stitcher and, and stuff like that. I, I recommend sending out USBs to each and every listener. We'll see the R's. Or I could do, a lot of people do a SoundCloud now, but the the storage on SoundCloud is is not super cheap either for a subscription there but uh you know there's there's options there but it's like i i don't know i'm i'm i was happy with the way things were before and i'd like to try and get back to that if possible 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Ch- ch- change is um, it's uh, difficult. Uh, upgrading is not necessarily the answer we're, we're looking for uh, when we used our old ways. Uh, sometimes uh, it's like uh, being thrown into uh, into a dryer and yeah. uh, trying to figure out figure your way out uh, after being tumbled, tumbled, tumbled. Or maybe tumbled. I just throw everything up on on TikTok. That's hot these days, right? <laughs> we'll do one minute episodes. Yeah. Maybe I'll mime the podcasts for you because that's the way TikTok works, right? You you gotta sing and dance or mime to a pre-recorded thing. Kevin, um, anything yes. in particular? Uh, you, you know the, these things don't come out a week later, so um, but uh, regardless, uh, uh, plug away as much as you like your business, your social media, and uh, what have you. My God, I I've only done one film since we talked, so I don't actually have anything I've, new. I've only done one film, Cam, so I'm going to be a bad boy. <laughs> I've only done one film. The business is really slow here uh, because of the whole COVID situation and the film industry has slowed down quite a bit. So there aren't any films coming out for a while, um, but I do have a couple of films waiting, I guess, for festival circuit to play on a festival circuit. I think I have a couple of films by Emperor, and I think... Oh, yes, I, I did sign up to do uh, virtual moderating for a film festival in Chicago called Asian Pop-Up Cinema. I'm doing a couple of Q&As for that festival, and I think that's happening in October, I think. The Q&As, the, the short version will be shown with the films. I think they're doing like a drive-in thing, but the longer version of these Q&A videos will be on the internet at Asian Pop-Up Cinema, so you can see me talking to uh, some Hong Kong filmmakers, and I'm subtitling myself, so I know that there will be subtitles, for sure. Excellent. Like, they, they've recruited CNN's Kevin Ma, finally. Like, uh, your media exposure paid <laughs> off. Yeah, yeah, that helped. BBC, BBC and CNN's Kevin Ma, Ken. Um, and the guys have been in the South China Morning Post, for heaven's sake. Um, in terms of the podcast, you you're, you were on one of those uh, top 10 uh, Hong Kong podcast uh, lists um, a while back, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, but that that's Jack Ma's South China Morning Post, so who knows oh, what that's worth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there it is. Let's uh, take a music uh, break, uh, listen to uh, some uh, music. Um, uh, I don't know, did, did Andy do a theme for Wesley's Mysterious File? I didn't stay for that. Yes, he did. Yeah, I checked on the Wikipedia page, but I have never heard that song before, so I don't know what happened there. <laughs> so, so we will try and find out if they play that presumably at the end of the movie or uh, or whatever. So, uh, we'll be right back uh, in thirty seconds or so with the rundown, and then we'll start off this uh, uh, finale to uh, to the Wesley of it all. So, we'll be right back. And welcome back and first a little rundown of what's to come here. Uh, there are not many sections in this um, episode, but you'll be able to navigate the episode anyway Anyway, via the timestamps. Uh, so first in the Wesley's Mysterious Fire section, we'll talk a little bit about the reception of the film, uh, its written source material, uh, and uh, we'll then review the film. And after the break, we'll uh, conclude the episode uh, and the miniseries by reviewing A Tale from the East. 
So here we go, the Wesley's Mysterious File from 2002, a plot from the Love HK film review of the film, goes as follows. Andy Lau stars as Palpiero Dr. Wesley, who works for a United Nations extraterrestrial investigation unit located in San Francisco. Wesley's adventure begins when he meets Fong, played by Rosamund Kwan, who is interested in purchasing a skeleton hand that supposedly belongs to an alien. Also, Wesley runs afoul of Sue, played by Shu Kei, and Pak, played by Roy Chung, agents who are agents for Double X, the US extraterrestrial agency. Double X is searching for the Blue Bloods, a race of aliens possessing nifty powers, and Wesley is enlisted to help. And furthermore, Fong is actually a Blue Blood too. Her race hails from the Dark Blue and are after the Blue Blood Bible. This is fantastic scripting by uh, Wong Jing. <laughs> Uh, she and her brother Tan, played by Samuel Pang, uh, were separated when they arrived on Earth 600 years ago. She thinks he's dead uh, and wants uh, to find uh, the rest of his skeleton along with the hand uh, she recently acquired. Wesley vows to help her, but he has his work cut out for him. The government actually has uh, shady plans for the Blue Bloods, and there are even alien baddies, played by Mark Cheng and Alman Wong, who show up to cause mayhem. So, 2002. It was a special year for Andy and Andrew, but not during this time of the year. That was later. This was uh, the same year as when Infernal Affairs was released, which was, if my memory is correct, at uh, almost at the tail end of the year. Uh, Hong Kong Movie Database lists uh, 12-12, literally, December 12th as uh, release date. But uh, Wesley's Mysterious File didn't make any money in comparison. Uh, uh, but uh, and Andrew Lau is on his own here. He's not uh, joined by a co-director of note, uh, Alan Mack, in the case of uh, Infernal Affairs. But uh, he's uh, Robert has he has teamed up with uh, Wong Jing, who wrote this or co-wrote this. I mean, he, the, the co-writer has one of those um, uh, wacky credits that's it's it's thirteen Chan, sometimes written out as the number thirteen. When it all was said and done, though, uh, this movie was uh, completely ignored by the Hong Kong Film Awards. Uh, uh, but I suppose Andrew Lau was happy when the year was summarized at the awards ceremony as Infernal Affairs won Best Film and Best Director, which he shared with Alan Mack. And uh, for Wesley, its $9 million Hong Kong dollar box office, uh, it meant it didn't crack the top 10. Uh, the Lewis Koo movie, The Lion Roars, was in 10th place with approximately $12 million. So... That's what I looked up, but I had some help, and uh, I, I want to throw over to the sort of box office guru, Kevin Ma. Uh, put $9 million in perspective, if you can. You know, being a Wong Jing production and script, you got Andy Lau, Xu Kei, Andrew Lau. It was released in March 2002. Are we talking disappointing figures uh, when all of us said and done, in, in your estimation? Oh, it's a giant flop. I mean, think about it. The film was shot in San Francisco. From what I read, the film was actually shot in 1999, and it took two years to do the special effects. And I feel bad saying this because I think I know someone who went to my film school who worked on the special effects because he worked for Manfond. So he might have done this, but can you believe this movie took two years to complete? My God. But yeah, uh, so so yeah, I mean, Sean America, a large part of it from Sean America, although I think and I suspect and I can't say this with any sort of proof or evidence, but the film was shot in the same year as Sausalito, which was also directed by Andrew Lau, which was also shot in San Francisco, which was also written by 13 Chan and I think produced by perhaps the same company. I'm not sure if Star East was still in in uh, operation by 2002, but uh, sorry, 2002. Yeah, 2002. So 
I suspect that they just shot both films in San Francisco just to save Andrew Lau or the production some money or some time. But still, I mean, you've got that cast that, you know, the special effects shooting in the U.S. Yeah, I think I don't think nine million might have only made back like a fraction of the budget. And and also Andrew Lau, as a director, had made his name and made money shooting extensive special effects before with the likes of Storm Rider. So that's a name to lean on to get that stuff done and get the audiences in. But I suppose that magic formula can't uh, can't happen each and every time. Maybe if um, maybe if Ikin had played uh, Roy Chung's role, I don't know. Maybe that would have helped <laughs> somehow. But uh... I, I suspect that people watched the film on the first day and they just told everyone they know to not see it. So that's probably what happened. Uh, as Paul informed us of beforehand, uh, the Wesley's mysterious file is adapted from Nick Wang's novel Blue blooded people or blooded aliens possibly if uh, we're going by uh, a translation because i don't know if this has an english an official english name regardless but do you know anything about its content paul if it follows the novel strictly and uh, this is a a a major sort of strict adaptation or or are they pulling from different literary literary sources or even doing their own ideas you think yeah, I think if you, I mean, like we've talked about with some of the other en- entries in the Wesley saga here, uh, this one is taking a lot of liberties. From what I've gathered, there's no, there's been no English translation of this story, but apparently this story is one of the more popular stories of the uh, of the Wesley saga in the in the Chinese books. That is, and I remember there being a little bit of excitement. Um, prior to release because of that, that, you know, they were going to do the Blue Blood story. I knew Wesley from the other films, but I didn't know much about the story. I was fairly excited uh, going into the cinema, and then I came out of the cinema and my excitement (laughs) was gone. Um, And it's interesting that, uh, that it... You know, Kevin said you, that you, you're like me that. going into the scene, like, yeah, <laughs> like blue blooded <laughs> people, Andy La. Yeah, like like minutes later. Andy Lau, science fiction, you know, two things I love. But it's interesting that Kevin said that they actually, you know, did the production work in 1999 um, and we didn't get it to the 2000. And it makes sense because they had to wait for the PlayStation 2 to come out in 2000 <laughs> to get the graphics of a PlayStation <laughs> 2 on screen, right? Because that's what it looks like. Um, all right, so as I understand it, um, the the basic story in the novel is that, um, yeah, there are these aliens. They come from Saturn or more specifically Titan, I think, one of the moons, and they have blue blood. But other than that, they pretty much look identical to humans. And the only way you can kind of tell is either when they bleed or when they... Um, show some emotion they have an emotional reaction and it causes them their skin to turn blue and this is kind of described as how we as humans turn red when we blush we have a blush reaction and so you know when you read stuff like that you think ah you know that's you know in, in a literary sense that's kind of an interesting concept that they're playing with we don't we get none of that here i mean here it's all the spectacle that they're trying to focus on um, the, the main character that's played, portrayed by uh, Rosamund Kwan is a male character in the original story, as I understand it. And here they kind of take that and 
rework it and build it into this, you know, romance. Because why? Because it's Andy Lau and Rosamund Kwan, of course. Uh, we get a retelling of the uh, Pak Su story, you know, just like we got in the Sam Hoy version. It's it's her and her brother here, although their origin is reworked as now they work for this agency that's kind of like, you know, a division of the FBI called Double X. And that that's all fine. I think points we've covered before, I I, I don't think that um, the, the Paksu character is portrayed all that well. I think Andy makes potentially for a good Wesley, um, but he needs a different director and a different writer to pull that off better. And, but the rest of it, I just think is like, you're just kind of head scratching, but Hey, Wong Jing shows up and has a great scene uh, until he does, until he's no longer there. And it's almost worth the price of admission. No, it's not. <laughs> well, that's a that's a the short opinion out of the way. Uh, we've hinted at it, but uh, we're going to do it as we always do. So let me throw over to Kevin for a brief bite. First of all, of uh, the Wesley's mysterious file, and and I gather, you know, regardless of when you saw this, because uh, you 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 weren't in Hong Kong when this opened, this didn't play favorably then, and didn't play favorably now either, right? Well, you know, I was in San Francisco when this film came out. I watched it in, on VCD. In, I wanted, I lived I wanted in to be an extra. No, no, I, I live. Yeah, well, no, I don't. But there, there was a rumor. There was a rumor that Andy, because Andy Lau is a big um, bowling fan. So there was rumor that uh, the bowling alley that I used to, I, in the middle school, I was in a bowling league. And he apparently, the rumors that he played bowling at the bowling alley that I, that I used to have my bowling league in when I was in middle school. But anyway, that was the one my closest encounter to Andy Lau until like I watched saw him at a concert. I mean, the film is literally, it's like the 21st century Hong Kong cinema hall of shame. That's how bad it is. Really one of the worst things Hong Kong cinema has delivered in the 21st century. Could you pin it on, could you pin it on Andrew Lau? You think, or is it a co 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 combination of writing effects work acting? You know, everyone, everyone involved in this film is terrible. In terms of English-speaking actors, the, the elementary school teacher who played Wesley's teacher is the best, and that is saying something. I like the Australian landlady who had one line <laughs> that, 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 that they had in San Francisco. And Mr. Wilson just has this sort of worst Sean Connery impersonation ever. Um, yeah, I, I just couldn't stand this movie. But for some reason, I keep rewatching. I, I've seen the first half of this movie many times just so I can, like, revisit how terrible it is like when someone wants me to show them the worst example of an english line in a, in a hong kong film i show them the scene of terrible pain where the guy the guy gets hit with a can and then it goes terrible pain and he runs away <laughs> i always look back on that scene with like with weird ironic fondness it, it, it sounds like yeah that um that, that it's uh some kind of um called a stage direction in the script like that classic clip from hercules where the actor uh, he looks around and then he says disappointed <laughs> and it's a rumor that that wasn't actually a line but it's like a a, a stage direction of a script and he took it as a line so it's a maybe the actor did he he saw a terrible pain but it wasn't in proper brackets or whatever no i guess i, I guess that's my line yeah, and then so for some reason, no one on set actually spoke proper English enough to tell either Andrew Lau or anyone on set to go, that is a terrible line. Yeah, it, it's just, it is just really one of the worst things. There is no tension in any of dialogue scenes. There's this whole 
intrigue thing. And I'm watching it, and I watched it again just you know for this series, and I realized how badly directed even the dialogue scenes are. You know, there's just no tension in all these sort of double cross and intrigue because every no one seems to understand what's being said. And not, and not even uh, and not even Lee Kwang got to do a cameo this time around. He he had a knack for um, getting a cameo into these uh, movies where he played uh, himself, unrelated characters, or even um, you know just a, a random anonymous uh, person. Uh, so um, who who knows if he was even asked? Well, instead they got Patrick Long Kong, which is a which is a hell of a get. I think. I mean, he's fine in the one scene that that he's in. And there's all these you know the thing with the planet numbers. You just imagine them on set, like flubbing over the planet numbers, like how many times they flub over planet GC one four six four double eight six eight double eight nine. Yeah, like <laughs> you just imagine how many times they either they flub over it or Andrew Lau just goes, just make up the numbers yourself. I don't give a shit. Just do it. I'm sorry. Am I allowed to swear? Here? <laughs> it's okay. It's very much okay. I and and I understand your frustration. Uh, as for my <laughs> short opinion, then we're getting into some details. I have a very short one. Uh, I don't like Andrew Lau, and in this movie, I'm not sure I like Andy Lau either. <laughs> and, and that make, and that makes me very very sad because I was hoping Andy might have left a favorable impression, but this is um, this is not his task, of course, to save this. This is on uh, terrible writing and uh, just dull direction, which is uh, Andrew Lau kind of in a nutshell for me. I'm not a big fan of him as a director. Better as we've talked about when when there's no effects involved, but um, there's cases of uh, him being an incredibly dull director, even when he's just uh, doing triad stuff. But um, there, there it is. I mean, you you would think that it's, it's a modern movie. You can employ more visual trickery for this kind of plot. And so you would hope that that would mean a crazier, flashier, more true Wesley adventures versus, you know, the early 90s stuff with the cat, for instance, that had special effects know-how and special effects photography. But you know, obviously things have evolved, and and you have the biggest baddest superstar, you know, uh, in the series. Chiamfat was just a supporting character in the seventh uh, curse, despite playing Wesley. So it's the in my eyes, it's the biggest best casting on paper. So it makes you go kind of yeah, let's go, and it's it's no surprise to me, guys, that this falls flat the way it does because I, I think you can pin a lot on Andrew Lau I've never felt he was this director who could intensify uh, on his own uh, intensify a movie with visual spectacle I, I often come back to that and maybe it's not a very refined critical note that he's a very dull director and and <laughs> I don't know how you guys feel what what Andrew Lau has left what kind of impression he has left um, with you guys, regardless of working with effects or or shooting, uh, you know, regular movies, tried movies. So if we, if we go back to you, Kevin, like, uh, what is it about Andrew Lau you think works versus doesn't work in yours? If I'm speaking as someone in the industry, I think what Andrew Lau brings is that he can deliver big budget films on time, on budget, and he's tough on on his crew. He's tough on his actors, so he's very fit for Hong Kong cinema in that sense that he delivers things and he knows how to execute things. He has a leadership quality to him. But in terms of artistic, artistically speaking, you know, he's a cinematographer, so he delivers very beautiful images, I'm sure. I mean, technically, I'm sure he's a very good um, guy in capturing images, but he knows nothing about sensible storytelling or logical storytelling or uh stage direction he knows not it, it clearly knows he knows nothing about that even to now in 2020 um so so and i can understand why the industry likes to use andrew lao but 
as a film viewer, as a as a pseudo film critic, um, as you know, a film fan. To me, he is one of the worst directors. He's one of the worst and luckiest directors in Hong Kong cinema, I think. So if we go to you, Paul, uh, we've gone to your head, Jingle Ma or Andrew Lau. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, wow. It's, um, I mean, there's, look, there's stuff I like from Andrew Lau. I mean, um, go through his filmography. Um, Dance of a Dream is a film that I, I deeply, deeply love, I think. Uh, what's the one he did in Macau with uh, Andy and Shuchi? Um, Shoot for the star, something from the stars. Um, look for look, look for a star. Look for a star. I was going to um, say look for your dream, but they all sound yeah. the same. There there are things out there that he, that he does, but um, that that I end up liking. But you know, there's it's it's a it's a hit or miss with with me. He's not somebody that comes out and says, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna absolutely." I, that's a you know a film I know I'm gonna love because he's got so many out there that i don't love um and and this being you know prime among them and it's interesting because he's got such a diverse background technically you know he's not just a director he's been uh you know he's got a lot of cinematography credits and but he doesn't ever come across as somebody who's particularly interested in making sure he's got um good looking shots you know um and he's never come across as somebody who's really interested in making sure he's telling a really great story. So it's like, it's a mixed bag. You never, you're never really sure what is going to be the focus of, of what he's working on. And, you know, during this time period, we've talked about storm riders before, which is another film that I know it has a lot of, you know, it's very divisive among fans out there, but it's one that was very revolutionary for me um, going forward. And I really liked what they did with the special effects in that film. And I think that, for the time and for the storytelling, that it still holds up pretty well, um, including the special effects, which can be dated. You know, the effects in Storm Riders are heads and shoulders above this one, by the way. It's uh, kind of amazing. That's the thing. Something happened from that period of, you know, 1998, 99, when they were making this push into new types of special effects and moving away from the sort of Zoe Hark-style special effects that had kind of dominated the industry since um, since uh, Zoo, right? And going into this new area, and by this time, by the early 2000s, you get films that have this look, like Wesley, where it's kind of washed out because they're doing these uh, layers. And I don't, you know, it's, I don't know if it's because they got so many layers going on in After Effects or or what it was technically, but... If you look at the stuff coming out of Men Fond, who was the the big arts uh, effects house at the time in Hong Kong, and I think uh, Centro, Kevin, you can correct me if I'm wrong, was, mm-hmm. was another one that 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 came around. They have this kind of washed out, colored look over them that I always attributed to just the post processing that was going on on top of the film to add in those layers of computer generated effects. And it just doesn't look good. I mean, I mean, yeah, you can go back and you can criticize some of the film stock of the 90s. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, like in a tale from the East and and how the film stock during those eras didn't always look good. Sometimes it had kind of this yellowish quality to it, you know, depending on the film stock and the lighting and stuff or was, you know, cheaper film stock. But that never really bothered me as much as as the, the the films that were special effects heavy in this era that just just really got this kind of weird colorization to them. They didn't look clear. They don't look good 
you know, on, on DVD or especially on HD um, as they're getting upscaled these days. As a director, to get back to your point, he's never been somebody who's really gr- had a great attention to detail in given areas, be it story or, or the look of films. But I guess to Kevin's point, he's somebody that can, as a director, get the job done. And I got to imagine that, you know, a film like this taking on a big title probably wasn't cheap and then shooting it overseas and then having to do all this post-production processing, you know, that's a, that's a lot to take on. That's not something that, that uh, a, a neophyte director is going to do. So, yeah, I mean, I would try and direct the viewers to some of the 90s stuff, uh, you know, pre young and dangerous. There are some interesting, um, triad uh, films that it did and uh, heck he even did uh, one of those uh, Mr. Vampire copies uh, one of his first movies if not his very first movie was with uh, Lam Ching Ying Ultimate Vampire and things like that uh, did an early Aaron movie River of Destiny that stars Aaron Danny Lee and uh, Lucy Liu in one in her only uh, Hong Kong movie when the style was, uh, you know, wasn't that uh, refined, certainly not special effects heavy at all, he held my interest a little bit more. And uh, To Live and Die in Sim Shatsoi is my favorite Andrew Lau movie because I think it's a solid uh, undercover triad piece. Uh, Jackie Chung, Roy Chung, there again, and uh, Tony Lau. You know, the, the setup, you know, it's, always, it's okay. There, there's something there, you know, there's a battle in space and there's space pods uh, heading to Earth, you know, and it's a setup. And then uh, Wisely is our narrator, like uh, like Ni Kuang is our, is our narrator in the books and all of that. Uh, uh, the cat you utilizes uh, voiceover to have Wesley sort of um, tell the story a little bit. It's clearly also a movie that doesn't ask us to take this alien threat that seriously because they're very casual about it they're, they're casually describing the aliens may walk among us and uh, he breaks the fourth wall at one point uh, Andy Lau uh, before he goes in to meet uh, Patrick uh, Patrick Lung and uh, he, he's not a clown but uh, cl- it's clear we're not asked to take this uh, super, super seriously but uh, yet by the end we're kind of asked to invest in the plight of the blue bloods which we certainly aren't after some very very strange scenes uh, towards uh, the back end you know whether the sex scene or what have you so um you know the stakes aren't you know terrifically high for us we're not uh, engaging that much uh, in this out of this world story but i i, I would have wished for some more snappier spectacle whether effects or even gore but um Andrew Lau is not a director that I equate to being able to pound us into submission with effects work and pace and intense camera work. It's um, even using this stuff, it's kind of dull and boring. Um, as for Andy, I mean, for a while he brings a cool and he has a confidence in situations. Uh, as a character, he's not, he doesn't sweat and he's immaculate uh, all throughout. But they, when they all meet up with the double X people, they're very casual about uh, maybe they're desensitized to this work. They've had aliens uh, in their lives uh, forever and ever. So they even tell a little side story that happened in the past where they they talk about um, an alien baby would have been born here if they hadn't go on and uh, went in and uh, and rectified that or got it back to its planet or whatever. And I'm like, tell that story. <laughs> like, don't be casual about it, dropping little. Uh, uh, little side stories like that, but maybe that's Wong Jing's idea of ah, if this makes it, I'm gonna tell that story. And and then there's entirely uncool dialogue from uh, Shu Kei 
at uh, you know at uh, gunpoint where uh, where she says like your this bullet will hit your central nervous system and you will die in a second and wisely is all like I'm cool with it and he can evade that threat and all of that so there's there's evidence early the, the, the trying for a relaxed cool that isn't landing very well at all, especially when they all start talking English. Poor actors. I mean, I really, in these cases, it's not like Andy and Shuke go into six months of uh, dialogue training to be ready for this. It's one of those things like, yeah, I came up with something and it's not a Cantonese script anymore, guys. It's an English script. They they spring this on the actors, and I'm, I'm that's where my heart goes out to them, that they need to um, try and adapt to this and try and get the inflection through. Uh, but especially when it's all technical mumbo jumbo and this this alien plot, the English dialogue doesn't translate into <laughs> it's, it's crazily bad but funny. It just <laughs> dies a quick death right there and very early. On. There's no outrageousness to the scenarios that they talk of, and there's no outrageousness to the scenarios they uh, they describe. You know, uh, in this in these bright and glossy environments, and the chase for aliens, and they've even captured aliens at the Double X Unit headquarters, and all of that. It sounds great on paper, kind of that like they're going to build this sort of crazy tech technique. Uh, high-tech modern world there's aliens here and Andy Lau is cast as Wesley that's going to be cool but in my eyes there was incredibly poor signs in the early goings that this is not landing and uh, this CG I think comes uh, the more extensive CG comes um, later of course but um, they even use CG for when at one point the um, uh, computer terminals are overloaded so they uh, they create sparks instead of actually having sparks on the set, and that was like a red flag for me as well. They they couldn't even do, do sparks on set. They had to do like these little things. Uh, they could have bought firecrackers for heaven's sake and had that be overloaded computers or whatever. So there were early signs here of uh, something not working, and uh, Wong Jing's uh, English dialogue just being totally. You know, there's a lot of exposition and technical stuff, and that that just flew right over me because not that I didn't get it, but it was just like this is not engaging at all. Okay, what are they doing? And would have had helped him to be all in Cantonese, probably not. But it wouldn't have felt as awkward as it does. You know, so you know, what did you think, Paul, of uh, of, of the English choice here? Was that like uh, just uh, a kiss of death for the movie, or it had it just a uh, one thing out of a thousand things that? Uh, this movie did wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, we're going to throw 90% of the budget at uh, these really bad-looking uh, special effects, and we're not going to reserve any to hire somebody like Kevin to come on and uh, give us some actual, you know, <laughs> overview of, of of the script, you know? Uh, it's, it's, it's cringingly bad at times. I mean, and I agree with Kevin's assessment. The, the dialogue from the the teacher, the primary school teacher, is the best. I mean, <laughs> that, that ends up coming out of anybody's mouth. And even poor um, Shuchi Shuke, she is like post dubbed, and I'm pretty sure it's her doing her own post dubbing. And sure. it's still bad. <laughs> it's <laughs> like you know, we're going to take you in a studio and have you re-record your English lines, and it's still going to be just jarring and halting. And as somebody who loves science fiction, you know, loves Andy Lau, loves these actors, it's 
it's really hard to bash on this, but it's just so bad. And even if you look at the story, okay, it's like science fiction's greatest hits taken from DVDs that are on either Wong Jing or Andrew Lau's shelf. I don't know who's, okay? But break it down. The Wong Jing character, his little virus uh, ripped right out of Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> You've got most of the movie, which is trying to be Men in Black, but it isn't. And then you've got, you know, the love scene taken out of Cocoon, right? I mean, come on, guys. I mean, it's... And a Hong, Hong Kong ripoff artists in cinema could use that shameless tactics for fun and energy. But we probably have to yeah. rewind a few years, maybe five, seven, eight, nine, ten years for that to be hella fun and shameless. But yeah, Wong Jing absolutely. is the king of is the king of uh, rip off artists, you know. This reminds me. I don't want. I, I, it's kind of a, we're kind of getting ahead there, but it reminds me of that scene in uh, Tale from the East where they ask the Wesley character, "Oh, where'd you get that idea from?" And he lifts like the laser disc for Back to the Future in another film. It's like the here. It's like they ask Wong Jing, oh, "Where'd you get that idea from?" And he takes up Men in Black X Files, and then, yeah, that's where I got it from. Yeah. So, but what about you, Kevin? Are you, do you think it had a chance if they just stuck to Cantonese, uh, Cantonese script, and like stuck to the technical stuff, but in Cantonese, uh, or it's simply not good regardless of uh, what uh, language is delivered in? No, no. I mean, this was made in that really terrible period before the beginning of Chinese Hong Kong co-productions, where Hong Kong cinema was kind of on a downward spiral is going down and it was in danger and they were trying to prove themselves to join the rest of the world by making a lot of movies with english dialogue okay, by the way before you go on was full-time killer just prior to this or was the, i think so yeah because that, that was also a case of uh, again andy but with johnny toe and waikafai just um, yeah. going with English for a large portion of it. And I, I never really liked Fontaine Killer as a movie. And that choice felt forced in that one, too. Right. And then you even got, you know, the late 90s with those, uh, the Wilson Yip Caper film with Leon Lai, the Skyline Cruiser. And then there was another heist film with um, Bruce Lee's daughter. And you've got the Jackie Chan movies with all the English dialogue. And so this before. So this is like Hong Kong cinema's attempt to join to become to become part of global cinema saying that you know, we can make big blockbusters like you guys do and then then they hire men fun and then the rest is history but um let's perhaps move on to um to the person who provides this movie with some personality and i wish i could say well let, let's talk about andy lau for half an hour but he can do no wrong and i love andy but his charm is forced so there's no real personality here so you have to turn to wong jing for Maybe not personality, but levity, because uh, he's uh, he likes his silliness, and he's he's gonna write himself a part, mind you. <laughs> I'm gonna be in it too, because I can. So Doctor Quark, uh, what's that his name? I wrote Doctor Quark, but it feels wrong saying it. Uh, but he he's silly and elusive because um, he's a silly uh, producer, actor, and writer. So I'm gonna write this part for me. But there is this makes the movie that, as we said. Didn't try to be super serious, but it, we got at least some silliness and some light-hearted stuff in it. And maybe it's just because the rest of the movie stinks so much that I enjoyed the cheap, low gags, poor writing that Wong Jing brings here because it's it's kind of entirely inappropriate. But I like Hong Kong movies of the of yesteryear, even before this one. 
being entirely appropriate with moods. And Wong Jing has entered movies himself that way after very serious triad stuff or, or rape stuff and then I, I got a comedy scene here. So that's what he's still doing in 2002. So I found myself uh, enjoying but also sort of cringing at uh, that, that, that this is not the movie for this. But I get what you're doing. You're, you're trying to uh, you're trying to attempt fun for us here. And and his exit uh, stuff, which we might spoil, is good. His exit is just absolutely... Well, you went there. And uh, props for that. So, the levity, it's okay because the, the rest is just sort of flatline and not engaging. But uh, in actuality, if we turn to you, Kevin... Does Wong Jing bring anything that's credible, bearable for you here? No, never. <laughs> no, I have no love. I've lost all love for Wong Jing since I watched, started watching his films regularly after moving back to Hong Kong. No, I think the man aims low and never even reached that really low standard. I, I have no love for Wong Jing whatsoever, uh, honestly. I mean, w- w- would it have make sense with a, a better comedic actor in the role, you think? I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, the whole like like Paul says, the entire existence of that role is ripped off from Jurassic Park, which already is like. So I guess you have to cast someone that's like Little Sight Newman. Sorry, that's the only name I know the guy from because of Seinfeld. <laughs> but um, maybe Wanting wrote that role for himself. I don't know, just so he can get a vacation in San Francisco and get to touch Rosamund Kwan. I don't know. I think I feel like Wanting is that kind of guy who can pull it off. But no, I don't think anyone, anything that character's addition or subtraction would make the film better or worse, or if casting a better actor would make that film any better or that character any better. I think this whole thing is just one misguided, misjudged mess that should never have happened in the first place. Oh, by the way, by the way, I should add that the, the translation of his last line, I think it was wrong because I think it says that like, I'm not going on a diet again or something, but actually he says it's even better. He says, Oh, I don't have to I don't have to go on diet anymore. That's what he says before he get he goes out of the film. Before he vaporizes. I don't need to go on a yeah, diet anymore. Right. Yeah, I don't have to go on a diet anymore. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean the, the the scene I was gonna refer to is I think he tries to play Wesley at this point, you know. I'm Wesley, I'm super Wesley. And uh I I got a supreme technique to use here. If you let me place uh, uh, my tongue in your mouth. I can extract uh, the communication out of you kind of thing. He writes these perverted scenarios for himself gladly, apparently. I mean, this wouldn't pass mustard in uh, 2020, of course. Like, me too, me too, me too. What's he doing? I, I don't want to credit him, but I'm kind of in that place. Well, it's it's the most entertaining stuff in the movie. And I, I, ge- I guess you can't wa- wash out the stripes uh out of Wong Jing he's gonna be Wong Jing regardless of uh, what you think of him so he's gonna write perverted stuff and he's, he's gonna use that as an excuse to almost uh, almost uh, kiss the leading lady or at least uh, touch her a little bit so it's cringy but it's the most entertaining little bits out of the movie and his death scene is kind of fun so what what about you Paul uh, is he um, is he a benefactor for the movie Wong Jing in any way if you look really hard uh, for me he was it's not really in any great comedic sense or that he's a great actor, but his presence and what he's doing for me is a throwback to the early stuff he used to do the, you know, um, the, how to pick up girls and, and that kind of sort of nonsensical humor, the self-deprecating humor, the physical humor. And for a moment I was like, 
oh, well, they're, they're, they're taking me back to like the late 80s, early 90s. You know, I was I was in need of that levity because yeah. up to that point, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, for me, it it was it was a break. It doesn't really fit in the context of everything that's going on. It's not very much in the spirit of a Wesley film in my mind or a Wesley story. So, you know, it's a complete break out of that. But because the movie's so bad by that point, I just didn't care. It's like, at least this is something I I can reflect back on and, and, and it's something familiar. At least there was Wong Jing. That, that, that's the great. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, Take that however you like. By today's standards, yeah, it's it's very not not very politically correct. That stuff probably wouldn't play well anymore. And even the scene that occurs right before he he kind of comes on screen um, is this scene with this guy basically <clears throat> harassing Rosamund Kwan. And you know, back in two thousand two, you just see that scene and it's like, yeah, the guy's a jerk. But through today's lens, it's like, oh, it's like Harvey Weinstein and 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 stuff like that's going through your brain, and it's like, oh, you know, guys, it's just harder to watch um, a- anymore stuff like that. So I don't think you could, as a scriptwriter, willingly or or put stuff in, really with the intent of just kind of furthering, because that that scene's there to kind of further Rosemond Kwan's character's development a little bit. Um, and then build into as an introduction to Wang Jing. And I think that's it's a harder sell in today's environment. I liked um, the little glimpses of uh, the Mark Cheng and Alman Wong character, who for some reason are named Rape and Kill. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was terrible. I saw that. But, uh, but yeah. Mark, Mark Chan is Dr. Manhattan for about two seconds was pretty good. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixture of, uh, well, that and the Terminator and Body Snatchers, uh, probably Men in Black. And, you know, despite the horrible tentacle CG being what it is, it's not good. But at least the, there was a little bit of sign of a cranked pace. Uh, of them taking over new characters and assimilating and uh, what have you and but but it's too infrequent and uh, it might also be a case that i was just happy something of interest happened but i wanted more of that i like mark cheng a lot uh alma wong uh, was um, in her name is cat there's sort of a naked killer update a few years earlier and you know, I, I wished for more that we've been showered with more of that, more of that crazy spectacle CD stuff, but but with a good pace to it. But um, it, it perhaps wouldn't have been exemplary, but at least noisy. And sometimes I can get by with uh, at least uh, the movie's noisy and it's over quick. But Andrew Lau has not proven himself uh, throughout the special effects movies I've seen to be that good at involving through effects and crafting that infectious pace that uh, could have been here. And I mean, there, there's also you know more cringy scenes. I mean, it, it it's a special effects scene, but it's not a uh, a battle scene or anything. The the sex scene that uh, I didn't know was ripped off from Cocoon because I've only seen I think the Return of Cocoon many many years ago. The the sex scene in the in the in the orb must have been very stupid to shoot. <laughs> to have Andy sitting there doing uh, do, doing like old face. On, on green screen like oh oh yeah <laughs> i mean it's it must have like andy lau must have thought like i'm getting paid i'm getting paid i'm getting paid i'm getting paid it's over soon it's over soon 
actors reacting in general to you know, on on, gre- on green screen it's uh, it's it's um, they, they need to manifest some uh, imagination i'm sure but i I'm, I'm i think they're more fond of running away from imaginary explosions and dinosaurs and what have you than sitting there uh, having sex in this cocoon thing um Poor but there's even that one moment where Andy is like, "Give me a moment, give me a moment." That thing, I was like, "What? The? Why did I notice that the first time when I saw this?" This sort of like he swings his head away, he's like, "Give me a moment here, I need a moment." That kind of look. You know, like, it, what's the oddest thing. The, the, the funny point is, is that halfway through the rewatch, you know, as they're as they're trying to push this romance between uh, Andy Lau's Wesley and Roseman Kwan's uh, uh, Ting An character. I, I just like this is not working for me, and I actually had to go back and 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 watch. Um, I started watching um, "Thanks for Your Love," which I know from your review, Kenneth. You you were not a fan of, and, and I'd Ross, watch that in a heartbeat. In a similar in a in a similar uh, review has not not pleasant things to say, but it's a film that I, I always found their chemistry in that film to be quite good, and they've worked on other films together, I think, um, Savior of the Soul 2, and I think they were in uh, The Sting. You know, so they've been together. I have to imagine the two of them just kind of having worked so much together, sitting there just laughing it up uh, between takes in, in filming that that sequence. I was reminded of uh, Demolition Man, the sex scene in Demolition Man, yes. but, but that wasn't in the orb and all of those uh, moany faces and all of that. It was... Um, briefer but uh, a little bit more funnier because that's how they have sex in the future in demolition man by not touching it just hooking up to um to uh, wires and things yeah but that was play for laughs here it's, it's actually serious yeah and all of that stuff becomes a bit muddled uh, and sort of um he's in tune with uh, his mind is in tune with the blue-blooded beings and need to assimilate and insert himself into the mind that got lost on me uh, amidst all the terrible dialogue of course and uh, silly stuff like uh, the character wilson that thomas hudak plays for some reason tries to use chinese kung fu versus the aliens which sounds <laughs> hilarious but it's it's uh, it sort of slips into stupidity like really this is your way of crafting levity like a spontaneous idea on set or like a, an idea uh, workshopped for six months. I hope not, because it's very, very stupid. Uh, so, and, and even he has dialogue, Thomas Hudak, uh, at one point, I think I wrote it down. You have one option, enter the mind of the blue-blooded beings, Wesley. And I'm surprised he wasn't followed by a <laughs> can, can I have a Can I have an attempt at that, doing that line in Mr. Bosun's voice, the, the Kung Fu line? Not only Chinese, it was Chinese Kung Fu. <laughs> I'm going to channel my inner Sean here. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, I, I'm again, I'm only familiar with the movies, uh, the Wesley movies. D- d- despite all the, the crappiness of it all, is there any sign of they're actually getting the Wesley character more correct versus the other movies? Or this is, it's it's not following the strict characterization as such. Uh, like, did, did you pick up on any of that, Paul, or it's too hard to sort of look for that in this movie if they're getting the wesley the essence of wesley correct i mean not really it's i i I think like i said andy had the potential as a very good personification of the character although kind of feels maybe a little bit too old at this point um I, i again my exposure to him is reading him in english in the asia pack comic series where he's he comes across as a bit younger, you know, kind of mid 
young to mid twenties, I would say, uh, maybe late twenties at the, at the, at the oldest, his characterization, you know, he's super smart. He's super good at, at martial arts. He can figure things out. He's very well read. Um, he's a writer, you know, so they try and integrate those things here through use of narration and stuff. And you can see that presented in, in some of the other stories, you know, he's usually surrounded by books where, wherever his abode is, um, where I think they fall short is again, the Pak Su character who I think in terms of skills, uh, at least they let Shuchi kind of, Shuke sort of show her skill set a little bit more in this film than in other films like the cat where basically poor Christine was just eye candy, but you really don't get a sense of that. I mean, here uh, they initially start off as kind of rivals um, in, in the literature, but then very quickly they're together, they're married, you know, and, and they never really get a chance to get that far with the relationship. And here, that whole thing kind of takes a backseat to this constructed relationship between him and Rosamund Kwan, which is not part of, of the original literature because that character is depicted as a male. He's got the potential. Part of the problem, I think, with this is indicative of Hong Kong cinema is that they're not willing to commit to a, a lengthy series like this unless your name is Ikin Chang and you're in a Young and Dangerous film or you're Jet Li and it's a Wong Fei Hong film. Um, you, you don't really get, I mean, what, even Fong Sayok. Fong, Fong Sayok, we only got like two films, right? Um, Donnie Yen's Ip Man, maybe another sort of outlier. But, uh, you know, you haven't gotten a continuous uh, Wesley role, like a, a James Bond role where they start a narrative and, okay, if an actor's not really going to come back, we'll get another actor. I mean, Detective D is probably the thing that comes closest in my mind um, with Detective D being very much like a Wesley kind of character. And I think Andy Lau really kind of nailed that portrayal. And that's, in my mind, indicative of what he could have done here with better direction uh, and, and and a better story. But again, as I said, we're getting the retelling, his kind of introduction with uh, Pak Su and, and her brother, you know, so it's completely removed from every other iteration we've seen. And every other iteration we've seen is completely removed from each other. So we just don't, we, we don't have any kind of narrative continuity. Um, and that is something that I think that unfortunately this series could really use, but they just don't want to commit to it. Yeah, the Nam Nai Choi Wesley films would be my recommendations and they're, they're my favorites, even if the depiction of the character was lacking. I mean, again, wisely as uh, wisely, he's uh, he's pretty bad. He's a straight man, but the effects work around him and the craziness around him is fantastic. So, you know, so you don't really care for Wesley, but you care for Philip Kwok just uh, chewing scenery as, as the alien, not a blue-blooded alien. So he's in various uh, states in that movie, but um, when there's goo out, it's not blue. In that one, and in Seventh Curse, Chan Fat is supporting is a supporting character, but comes in during you know crazy critical moments, including you know taking out a rocket launcher and boom, blowing up the skeleton or the monster at the end. That's fantastic, but maybe it's not at all true to what Wesley is like. But they're better, they're more fun movies. So um, that's uh, that was the director you needed for those to sort of crank it, make it fun, make it move. 
and uh, if I remember correctly, both are like 80-minute movies as well. So uh, that director, Nam Night Shoy, had no plan to uh, to have us sit there. Uh, but uh, he had a plan to pound us with uh, that effects work of that time, and uh, that worked splendidly for me. Uh, but uh, at any rate, I've ran out of my notes. Uh, we might as well throw over to Kevin if you have any uh, impression of if this movie is closer to the Wesley... West, the literary Wesley. Uh, so, um, do you have any take on that? Uh, any extension of what uh, Paul was uh, talking of? No, I mean, like I said last time, I didn't read much of the Wesley or Wesley novels. This would not get me into an idea of the character. Although I do want to reiterate that, as I said last time, I feel that Andy Lau really has the swagger, the the, the personality the confidence to play the character is just that he was working with pretty much crap on every other level so there was no way that 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 franchise would have continued although i I do want to add that we were talking a bit before this um turns out that raymond wong had bought rights to the wesley franchise or wisely adaptation whatever and donnie yen actually wanted to play wisely and this still hasn't happened yet because raymond wong kept shoving uh, more it man movies on on donnie this is true this is true this is what he said he said i want to say and i'm quoting what raymond wong said about the wisely project back in i think 20 um 20 something around after he made a man free he said well Sam Hui was the best West Wisely. I produced that one. He, he's the West Wisely. <laughs> he's the best Wisely. Andy Lau couldn't do it. Chan Fat couldn't do it. And so Donnie, when Donnie said he he wanted to do Wisely, I said, well, let's just do it, man, instead for now. Well, Donnie has done character acting before. He's had glasses on in at least one movie before. So he's done character acting. <laughs> Everyone else has been so bad at Wisely. I don't even mind Donnie and taking a crack at it at this point. The key for Chaifat's performance was to give, at one point, give him a pipe and give him a rocket launcher. And then you don't need to use him that much because he's going to be awesome during those moments when he's contemplating things with a pipe in his mouth. Hmm. That might be due to this. And then at the end, boom! You know, that's all you need. Uh, but uh, but yeah, uh, and as, as I also said, uh, the prospect of Donnie and as wisely is just uh, sort of 0% excitement because uh, that's not... That, that's not for Donnie, and you need, uh, you know, maybe you need a Choi Hack for a movie like that. Just be extreme in all areas, so we don't think too much about the depiction of uh, of uh, wisely. But that's uh, we'll see what happens, um, because it's not a role that might require that much martial arts as such. Uh, so uh, that might be for maybe a relaxing thing for Donnie to do. At any rate, uh, any other notes, guys? Uh, otherwise, I'll move on to the very brief availability of it all. No, I'm done with this. Cool. Well, as for availability, it is. It's available on uh, Hong Kong Blu-ray, so go get it if you're interested in Wesley's Mysterious Files. We relied on the DVD for this uh, viewing, but uh, you can watch it in uh, the PS2 graphics in Grand All HD right now. So, uh, so go get it. And uh, we're going to take a music break, and then we'll conclude this uh, coverage with uh, a little known Wesley movie but uh, with a fun angle of its own because the creator is here to play his creation and that is the movie A Tale from the East from 1990 and we'll be right back after a music break.
and welcome back folks we're gonna conclude the wisely wesley coverage with the movie a tale from the east from 1990 a little known movie and uh, my memory is so short and bad that i didn't realize until i did a little bit of research because i have seen the movie before but the fact that it was a wisely wesley movie that had left my memory so it turned up in my research doing this ah okay cool i mean i don't remember if he's in it for more than a minute as wisely but uh, it fits the coverage, so uh, coverage. So let's uh, conclude it. And plot from the MoriaReviews.com website. Uh, at a conjunction of five planets, two people from 17th century China reappear in present-day Hong Kong. And they are the Imperial Guard Huang Xin, played by David Wu, who has lost his memory, and the Child Princess he was assigned to protect. They have been granted immortality due to their possession of a magic pearl. Here we go with the magic pearl again. Uh, they are found by uh, two people, uh, primarily. Uh, Chu Tai Lit, played by Billy Lau, and Chu Ko Yi, played by Joey Wong. Uh, they come across uh, Huang Xing, and then uh, he in particular becomes obsessed with obtaining the gold his armor is made of. But uh, they are separated because the princess is accidentally taken home by two idiotic electricians, played by Eric Cott and Jan Lam. And at the same time, the planetary conjunction has resurrected the blood demon, which comes after them um, uh, determined to obtain the pearl himself. So there's no extensive background. This is a, a small movie directed by Manfred Wong. We have a box office tally, but uh, it's not... Uh, I mean, at $3.3 million, I, I'm expecting this to be... Well, you know, it simply could not rival the big guns out of 1990s Hong Kong cinema, which was uh, probably about five Stephen Chow movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but at least, uh, you know, at the very least, it was the start of Stephen Chow's uh, reign at the box office. Um, I mean, we do, do do go back that far in your sort of uh, interest, Kevin, and look at old years such as 1990 and 91 to see what was going on in Hong Kong cinema who was the reigning champion of the box office because it's quite amusing to see this this year and certainly 91 and the likes how many Stephen Chow movies just dominated unless there was a Jackie Chan movie like is that fun for you to go back and uh, look at and analyze well to me that was when I kind of had conscious memory because I was about six seven years old at the time seven years old and um so i have very conscious memory even though timelines are a bit of a blur i have very conscious memories of you know stephen chow movies being the big thing jackie chan movies being the big thing and of course chow and fat movies being the big thing but i know it's, it's kind of interesting to look back and try to piece together the timeline and knowing when where things fall where you know that to me is interesting but as for me, I still have very conscious memories of, you know, going to a Stephen Chow film. And of course, everyone knows, well, people who know the industry know that that was when Stephen Chow was overworked to, to the brink. And of course, that was his biggest period. So he was worked to the brink. Like he made like four or five movies a year. And that's probably why he doesn't make movies anymore, because he has spent so much energy. Yes. Like Chow and Fat, he's, he would have like three, four movies a year. And they just overwork these guys until they run out of steam. And that's why Stephen Chow doesn't act anymore. That's why Chow and Fat, you know, doesn't act that much anymore. Because, they, you know, these guys have earned their time to be in semi-retirement. As for a tale from the East, uh, my brief opinion, it seems often rather mild in all departments. I mean, yes, the comedy 
is broad, but but it's also a little bit of everything with the emphasis on little, like a little supernatural, a little horror, a little wacky. It's got time travel-ish stuff. And it is an easy watch, like most 90s movies of various genres are for me. But it's also an unremarkable watch. It's, um, it is it is what it is. It passes by without offending anyone, really. But it, it is memorable. It's neat to see Wisely's creator playing his creation, though. And I'm sure, uh, you know, well, maybe you have an opinion whether now that he plays it, whether his depiction matches the books, finally, <laughs> now that he's in control of it. But uh, perhaps we'll get to that. So uh, let's throw over to Paula. What do you want to say in short of A Tale from the East? Um, well, let's just address the elephant in the room uh, that this is not based on a, a wisely novel and is pretty much, in fact, ripped off of The Iceman Cometh, which came out a year before and uh, <laughs> did like four times the box office. But that being aside, it's, uh, I, I think it's, it's, as you said, um, there are things here that are indicative of the era and it's very nostalgic for me. And there are moments of this film that are very charming. It's not a great film. It's not a great wisely film because the author is, you know, he's an elderly man. <laughs> he's middle-aged at this point, I guess in his career he, he's not indicative of wisely as he's written uh per se and he's just kind of there the label is cast upon him and you know he's he's the old sage he's the yoda of of the story basically and and that's fine for for the context uh, of the story but beyond that i it's it's kind of hard to quantify this as as a true wisely tale in terms of characterization what about you, Kevin? Uh, was was the, that the Iceman Cometh sort of a red flag going off, or you aren't that familiar with that uh, that Yun Bu movie? Okay, I don't really think about it because the film's Chinese title literally says "comic book hero," so it pretty much tells you what this movie is—a pulp. It's a pulp film. It's supposed to be kind of like a comic book fantasy, a, a very Hong Kong comic book fantasy with the, with the with that element. So. No, I didn't think of the Iceman comic. I mean, just very derivative of. of but the Iceman three D. That's what I thought of. That made me mad. <laughs> no, jeez. I mean, that's not even. I'm not even going to touch that movie. But no, I mean, in terms of the Nikon, the Nikon question. I I think that if you can look at sort of some of the details in that film, I feel like Nikon is playing himself more than wisely. Just because the whole thing with him drawing, I was like, look, I've written a hundred novels. Like it's he's pretty much playing Nikon. Let's face it, he's not really doing wisely at all. He's not doing really Wesley. It's just um, sort of a throwaway gag. And no, I I don't think this is canon at all. <laughs> but as a supernatural, uh, slightly creepy comedic, uh, also slightly effects mix, is it um, is it a watchable time? It goes by quickly. It's pretty much not painful. It is so it is so forgettable that they didn't even bring up a proper ending at the end of the film. They're just like, villain's dead, yay, and then cut to black. So it, it's that kind of throwaway film. And and I will, by the way, I will defend Softheart for 10 minutes if I have to, but not yet, later. Then that's the, uh, that's the comedic. They were a surprise to me, um, but I'll, I'll explain why. The thing you noticed, if you watch the poster and uh, you see the cast list, oh, Joey Wong is here and it's supernatural stuff. So are they going to lazily channel her mainstream commercial image after having broken through in a Chinese ghost story? Are they going to have low-flowing garments on her? Is she going to be a ghost? And they do here and there. You know, I mean, casting alone makes it so. 
that uh, you have Joey Wong. She's by 1990, I think you can still riff on her image, and uh, it's not a Chinese ghost story uh, ripoff because uh, those images of her in the past they're only briefly uh, flashed before us and all of that. So uh, there's lots of exposition early on, but uh, in terms of uh, the immortality pearl and uh, the various emperors and so forth, but that's uh, still very. Easy enough to absorb, and uh, it's an easy story. I had a tougher time with Bury Me High, but uh, this one is uh, is easy enough to get into. And uh, then we're thrown into the Billy Lau, Joey Wong movie that no one asked for. (laughs) (laughs) That that pair up is not uh, it's not a romantic pair up, mind you, but it's one of those things. Oh, he's gonna lead. Okay, okay. So Billy Lau can be this prospect of if you put him to good use, then fine. Uh, Mr. Vampire is a very good uh, usage of that stubborn police officer that doesn't believe there's a vampire around, and then then it is, and uh, then he, he he pays for that stubbornness, and he's uh, the kind of character that I'm gonna go and urinate next to a big spooky house in the middle of the forest, and then we'll drive off to the dark woods to party and tell uh, super scary ghost stories. Like <laughs> I, I, I like that the script dictates that everyone's gonna be super duper scared of Billy Lau telling a ghost story. But so they are like, ooh, even, even Andy Hoy is uh, scared shitless, apparently, by, <laughs> by, by the three, four lines that uh, Billy Lau's ghost story uh, consists of. But uh, it's, it's fine, it's fine. It's, a, it's the early 90s vibe, and you, you get through it easily. Uh, before I hand over, Manfred as a director, uh, who Abu, uh, Manfred Wong, who otherwise, here on this show, we used to talking of him in his writing capacity, being one of the creative forces uh, behind Young and Dangerous and uh, so forth. I've only seen uh, Twilight of the Forbidden City, which was a costume drama with Max Mock and the singer, Roman Tam? Roman Tam, yeah. Yeah. Competent-looking film, uh, had, some, had a little bit, bit of vicious streaks. I thought that was very, very watchable. And I did see, but have forgotten everything about Bruce Lee, my brother. Uh, which might have been a co-directed venture, but um, Manfred Wong was involved with that because I think it's Raymond Yip too on that one. It was probably acceptable, but not riveting. But uh, it, if it, as a Bruce Lee movie, didn't leave any uh, or a Bruce Lee biopic of some sort, didn't leave an impression that then then probably it was forgettable. So, uh, so before we move on to some specifics, uh, do you guys ha- have any spontaneous uh, thought on? what Manfred Wong as a director is like to you based on the one or two movies you've seen. So if we start with you, Kevin, um, have you seen uh, that Twilight of the Forbidden City or it's this and Bruce Lee, my brother, you think that's um, that's most familiar to you? No, Manfred Wong is always known as a writer to me. Of course, he wrote Storm Riders and I think Man Called Hero, a bunch of blockbusters back in the time. And him with Raymond Yip, they also have a directing writer team that have been that they have been working in China for quite a few years now. They actually did the first Lost on Journey film before it became Lost in Beijing and Lost in whatever. They did the first film. And so I was surprised to see him as a co-director for Bruce Lee, my brother, but he's usually a producer and a writer. But I think the thing is, I never thought Manfred Wong was any good. I mean, again, he's probably one of those guys that the industry appreciates for delivering something on time and just delivering something that's, you know, entertaining. But I've never thought of him as a, as a great writer or even a, a director, much less a director. I think the early venture, uh, an early venture of his, um, because I, if I'm not mistaken, he 
wrote Lonely 15, which is uh, David Lai's youth drama from the early 80s, which won the Hong Kong Film Award for Best Actress, uh, that actress that never acted again. Uh, that one movie, 100% success rate. <laughs> acted, Hong Kong <laughs> Film Award, I'm out. Uh, so yeah, I think he wrote that. So, uh, but 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 yeah, it's not like this. Uh, this light, I, I don't light up when I hear the prospect of Manfred Wong acting, writing, directing, or producing. But uh, he's, he's a he's a he's a, he drives franchises and has uh, driven fr- franchises to mainstream success. Obviously, so uh, so there is that. Um, uh, what about you, Paul? Number one Manfred Wong fan in the room here. I mean, I like him well enough. I like seeing when he pops up in cameos on screens and some of the stuff he's worked behind. Um, not seen Twilight of the Forbidden City, but I have seen uh, Crazy 17, uh, his first directorial debut, which um, is, is you know, a, a silly teenage uh, comedy uh, of the era. And I, I liked it well enough um, in, in terms of other stuff he's done production wise. I mean, you know, he's he's helped produce some of the Young and Dangerous stuff and um, Storm Riders. And, and he's he's had his hands in quite a few projects over the years. <clears throat> I think as a as a director, this film has uh, some technical problems, which uh, I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but overall, I mean, he's he's not somebody that I would just uh, write off because of his involvement. As for the direction, I mean, there's a problem throughout of um, there's a bit of sluggish pace to things that I would have liked to be a bit more snappier. Uh, so there's no particular thrill to the spooky supernatural stuff that he attempts uh, there in the dark woods, uh, the blue lit woods. And uh, there's no particular refined special effects here. You, you know, you see the child princess uh, walking in the woods, but the rain is avoiding her. She's got an orb around her. But I mean, it's it's functional, but no, nothing riveting or anything. So it's pretty slow going uh, as it attempts to craft that mood of creepy and uh, to be to have tension here as the resurrected uh, walks around. But uh, you know, it it uh, it's below ninety minutes, so in a way, it uh, it gets going quickly and uh, it it finds uh, good pace and even stupidity, and uh, stupidity in the early nineties in a movie that attempts things that don't belong with comedy, kind of can be charming. And uh, I didn't know because one, the print is too dark, <laughs> but they they're also walking around in a in a in a house with no electricity. If the wacky electricians were going to be the soft hard kids, I was like, they sure sound <laughs> they, they sure sound like them. You could tell by their voice. You could tell by their voice. But but uh, I was thinking like, hmm, maybe they got uh, you know the, uh, the 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 copy of the copy of the soft hard kids that tried to emulate Jan Lam and Eric Cot. But no, when the lights go on and the wacky ele- electricians do their thing, it sure is Jan Lam and Eric Cot acting up a storm and i have no particular sort of hate for this because um it they they give the movie an energy despite clearly being cast to just uh, act up a storm regardless of it fits with the supernatural plight of the you know the the resurrected warrior and the blood demon Uh, and they're even here to sing a song so it's like commercial casting here like uh maybe i don't know about if this was considered like 1990 was the height of their popularity and even in 1993 when they did City Hunter if they still were massively popular so even if they can't fit you put them in there <laughs> whether you like it or not they're gonna they're gonna get butts in seats so not funny but not disruptive to the mood I, I I thought it was fine so 
So I'm not gonna depress you therefore Kevin by slamming their presses. I think they're fine. And uh, I didn't mind that they, they were causing this. I mean heck, they're even in that Leon Lai movie Run, which is uh, the Hong Kong remake essentially of El Mariachi. And you wouldn't think that soft hard kids or, or their personas would fit Run. But yeah, they, they're here and they're gonna act up a storm in that one too. So so uh, let's throw over to you Kevin like uh, the prospect of them being here whether you knew it or not did you light up when you when you heard them in the dark there here's the thing Hong Kong cinema even now has a tendency to overuse the comedic personality of the moment and and milk them for all their worth they put them in every film it's not about putting butts in seats I guess because no one would ever go to a movie because soft heart is in it I think it's because it's just one of those upping the entertainment level kind of thing, I suppose. And they can deliver comic relief. I was a huge fan of Soft Heart when I was a kid. I listened to the radio show every morning. Were they that frequent? Were they morning radio hosts so for a couple of hours each morning? They do two hours every morning, pretty much on weekday, yeah. Cool. That that's yeah, they essentially you know uh, Sammy, the Sammy Learn, the actor who you know, the bit actor who always shows up in movies these couple these two decades. He also does a daily radio show with his partner, uh, Siu Yi. So, but then Siu Yi never does any film. It's always a Sammy for some reason. But Soft Heart, huge presence on the radio. Their crank calls is still one of the biggest, I think the most popular things that people like to go back to listen to on YouTube. They would do a call, people and do prank calls. It's, it's hilarious. But yeah, that was, so it was a surprise. It was a pleasant surprise for me to see Soft Heart, but totally not a surprise at all because knowing that it's a film from the early 90s, a commercial film from the early 90s, you are very likely to run into one of those comedic personality that you know everyone likes to put in their films. Right now, these couple of years, it's Bob, right? The guy with the glasses and the bald head. Before that, it was Sammy Learn. Before that, perhaps was in the middle of Siu Fei, the, the pop star, quote-unquote star. So, you know, this is just another one of those things that Hong Kong cinema always have been doing for the last 20 years. And I know that a lot of uh, foreign film, Hong Kong film fans don't really get soft heart. But for me, it was like, well, cool. It's it's very much a 90s film. It's cool. I, I love it. I love it. I, I like that they um, have crafted um, cinematic careers of note that are not connected to their radio personality uh, comedic act. Because Eric turned up in movies that uh, challenged his, uh, you know, he, he displayed dramatic range. And uh, he was excellent in that small little movie, Butterfly, many years ago. And uh, But has done some dramatic work. And Jan Lam, as you and I have talked about, Kevin is the voice of uh, the McDull series. He's the narrator of uh, the McDull series. So, And, and, and that's a, a very uh, nice voice and a nice bed to have across those movies as um, he uh, narrates as the adult McDull, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So... Uh, that's what I'm a fan of. Uh, I only know that very basic thing that they were radio personalities where, when people were talking of uh, City Hunter and doing audio commentaries on City Hunter. They, they explained why this big singing number is here and why these actors are here and why that scene was probably cut for export for, because no one would understand why there would be a five-minute singing number in City Hunter featuring the, these kids. <laughs> but uh, uh, what about you, Paul? Uh, good or bad inclusion to have these... Um, these two be the comedic presence uh, living in that uh, that big old penthouse uh, of uh, wacky inventions or wacky electronics or whatever. <laughs> so, so what was your take on the soft hard kids inclusion in in this one? No, I, I think they're fine. It's again, it's something very representative of the era. If you're somebody who's 
really into getting a bit further into the the cinema culture uh, of an era. It's always good to kind of know what what the pop culture trends are. So this is something that you know tends to you know carry over with each generation of film. You get uh, you know just like Ni Kuang being pulled over from the literary side to make cameos. You get uh, people in radio and. Uh, people coming over from, you know, if somebody's super popular on a TVB drama, you know, they they end up uh, kind of getting typecast into that. So we saw that with, um, uh, what's his name, Michael Tsai, um, Laughing Goal. He got popular in, in that role, and then that became his moniker for, you know, a, a, a number of years. Um, this, is, this is something that kind of happens in, in Hong Kong pop culture, uh, it's it's neither bad nor good, but it's something that uh, again, if you're more interested in some of the deeper layers, you know, you you can kind of come to learn these things over time. Somebody coming to this fairly new, you're going to look at these guys and go, oh, these guys are kind of you know just being super silly. Why? And then uh, the more you time you spend around this stuff, the more you'll kind of see them pop up here and there kevin mentioned or you mentioned that they were in city hunter a few years later i think this is their second appearance i think they're the first time they were on screen together is in a, a brief encounter in shinjuku which was a few months earlier than this film but yeah i mean it, they, they've both gone on to do you know very prolific things individually as well so um you know you, you tend to see this kind of thing happen now, when twins started out they were you know, twins, and they were doing roles in films together as twins. And then Charlene and, and Jillian kind of both, they, they each kind of sort of etched out careers of their own cinematically over time. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, going back a little bit to what they're attempting with uh, the, I suppose, uh, special effects, but the depiction of uh, of the supernatural and even horror. Manfred always action directors, they try to do like these uh, Evil Dead like force shots and uh, quick cutting and try and create uh, a pace that way. I think this movie is not fast enough in that department. They, they, I maybe I'm putting the bar sort of you know in the wrong place that I'm expecting Choi, a Choi Hak style whenever they do these kind of movies. But but I think that that's a more an alluring style when when it is a bit more quick cut when it is a bit more. Uh, fast and frenetic in this uh, setting and this these scenarios but uh, you know again I'm, i was pretty comfortable enough uh, watching this sort of lower slightly lower grade 90s energy but it's easy to get uh, through uh, despite and it's it's fun to see cars that you recognize from elsewhere of course i mean even the little princess uh, is one of those actresses that i wish i knew more of because uh, she went through some stuff on screen uh, Chan Chuk Yan if you've seen the action movie Fatal Termination she's the one that they uh, hang out of the window of, a sp- window of a speeding car and then Moon Lee jumps on the hood of the car trying to rescue her daughter as uh, she is attached to this uh, obviously fake hand and then they run around Hong Kong with um, with her attached to that in certain shots not all shots but she was also the little girl that witnessed the murder in Wild Search so she was always put in, often anyway, in these uh, serious scenarios. She, she's even she's in Casino Raiders too, and she's like this feral child in that one that's really gone astray, <laughs> uh, almost animalistic. And I would say that considering what they put her through, 
in these movies. Uh, I just hope that she is not sitting in a padded cell now. Now and like, what did they do to me? What did they do? What did they do to me? <laughs> Why would they do this to me? My parents, because they, they, she wasn't uh, the sweet kid. She was this kid in peril and things like that in, in movies. So, uh, but here she's the princess, and uh, she uh, she's treated mild enough. You know, it's a milder time here. Uh, I suppose the, the most they're riffing on Joey Wong's cinematic image is actually not a Chinese ghost story, but probably more, uh, maybe on a surface level, of uh, the, the movie Reincarnation of Golden Lotus that she did a few years earlier. I think it has a past element and a present element. Um, so, uh, in, and I mean, I don't remember if that was successful or not, but it certainly, when I was watching the movie, a Chinese ghost story didn't come to mind, but reincarnation of Golden Lotus came more to mind when it came to how they used uh, uh, Joey Wong and all of that. So, but as for the Iceman Comet stuff, I mean, to me it, it was there, but they, I mean, I, I mean, I, I, of of course it was ripping off Iceman Comet, but it didn't feel to me like they were completely aimless and just looking at one other uh, one other movie and uh, trying to replicate each and every idea from it. But granted, Iceman Comic does it with more style, with more uh, grand pace and uh, more uh, crazy, even horrendous stuff. Uh, the villain in that one, Yun as he enjoyed his mo- uh, modern day uh, modern day presence and all of that, he decided to be you know a murderer and a rapist. So the movie goes into those directions, but a tale from the east keeps it a bit more mild, I suppose. But uh, yeah, so, so I didn't feel it uh, took everything from uh, Iceman Comet uh, and all of that. So, so was there ever a distracting element for you, Paul? If you're more familiar with Iceman Comet, or uh, did you feel they just took some little bits and pieces and then did? sort of their own movie no it's not super distracting and i mean this is uh, I, I label iceman coming because it was a year earlier and it was much more financially successful and just sort of the the main parallels that you see okay time travel to the future uh a, a soldier and a rival and they're gonna you know kung fu fight it out in modern day and they've got to adjust to modern day things and some of the gags i mean this is a well that is frequently returned to um, the, this I, idea. I mean, I've seen it in numerous TVB dramas. Uh, just this week, uh, the week of recording, I just started watching this TV drama out of Singapore called uh, A Quest to Heal. And it's the same thing. They've got these characters from, these two characters from the Ming Dynasty, and they're somehow brought forward through time to to modern day. And it it works. It's cheap, you know, because shooting a period piece costs a lot of money. So it's easier if we can just uh, rent a theme park and uh, have some characters in costume kind of fight each other in, in various uh, modern locations, right? It's cost effective uh, to do it that way. So it's something that's that's easily returned to. And it also works in the sort of the sense of uh, cultural aspects of what people believe in terms of things like, you know, reincarnation, that uh, ideas... Uh, uh, that a character in the past is going to have somebody in the present that's very, very familiar and, and similar be uh, because of that. So, you know, it, it's something that's a very, very common theme. I don't I don't mean to sound like they're just copying and pasting directly from that. But I think you see those elements that were done a year before 
And it's very easy to see the parallels. So they say, well, let's take that and let's throw in soft heart and let's throw in uh, Ghostbusters riff at one point. And, you know, let's throw in, uh, uh, you know, uh, some, some, some uh, crazy, you know, some crazy action and some silly gags. And, and, and does anyone own Back to the Future on Laserdisc? Because we need that too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you know, and, uh, you know, we gotta gotta make a Laserdisc reference because that's the popular medium of, of the time. And and it all it all comes together. It, it, it works in in some ways. It's not spectacular um, by any any means. And in the pantheon of Wesley films, you know, it's not anywhere near the top for sure. But it's not offensive in what it's doing, really. Uh, there's some fun moments, as I said. For me, one of the best the best things about it is you get to see old Hong Kong. Um, one of the big things, one of the big locations they use is uh, called a happy dragon recreational park. It was this, uh, this theme uh, sort of amusement park slash water park in Taiwan that was open when I first moved to Hong Kong and it closed down very early in, in 2001 because they were building uh the MTR expansion to Ma'an Shan. And, you know, it's just, it's gone now. It's like it, it never existed. So, and there's so much like that in Hong Kong that you can, you can have a memory of and you can, can go back and see and experience again through cinema. So for me, uh, seeing that on screen is, is something that's like, you know, it's got this deep sense of nostalgia and you know it, that in mind this this can be something you edit out but kevin and i were talking you know last week uh one of the big things that's happened of late is that the the dynasty theater where we used to watch so many movies closed down and it's now being renovated right kevin i mean they're just like tearing it down they're rebuilding it into an office building probably the next time i'm i'm in hong kong that place which i have so many memories of is is just not going to exist. Uh, so, so I assumed you asked Kevin to like uh, pick up uh, like a brick from the demolition. <laughs> I've got photos of because this cinema the layout was very weird. You'd buy tickets down on the ground floor and then you have to go up these escalators um, because the cinemas were like several stories up and just above the ground floor level, sort of on the first floor level, they had this office level which was just kind of like this open space no real uh, sort of office rooms, as you can see. And all they used it for was they would lay out all the big marquee, you know, the cardboard marquees for different movies. And they had all this stuff, you know, all these Hong Kong movies, all these Hong Kong uh, cardboard marquees, and just like kind of laying around there. And I always want to just raid that place. <laughs> and, you know, now that the idea that, that that's just all gone, it's just no longer there. It's just, it, it's very depressing. <laughs> Sorry uh, for my little rant. That's okay. Uh, I found it fun that uh, when David Wu's character stumbles on to the movie set in a movie, that one of the actors uh, in the movie, uh, veteran actors that are just going to sit there, obviously not, not going to p- perform the action, that he says uh, that he wants to listen to the to the horse racing. So am I even needed in this scene, essentially? And that reminded me of stories you heard of directors who were like that. Like Wang Jing. Like Wang Jing, or going as far back as Lo Wei. Uh, when he directed the Jackie Chan movies, he didn't uh, quite uh, <laughs> stay on target, if you will. He would rather sit there and listen to the radio and make sure to place his bets. Uh, but it was amusing that they uh, they didn't place that story 
into the Alfred Chung character, who is the director, but rather one of the actors wanted to sit there with his little uh, pocket radio. And, uh, of course, this movie has to stop because, um, you know, you, you put hot elements in your movie. So this movie has to stop for an Amy Yip as herself cameo. It's literally what Billy Lau does. Like, I think they're driving a car. <laughs> stop. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta say something to her. I gotta compliment her and then the movie can move on because that cameo has nothing to do with anything. But you know, she was hot, she was hot there for a minute. Um, this was even pre-sex and then and the like. So um, she, I don't think she was viewed as the category free sex symbol. Perhaps um, erotic ghost story might have been out at this time. They definitely made references to her breasts. Definitely. Well, well, she had she, she had been in regular movies, so to say, whether like ghostly vixen or what have you. And uh, I think uh, even Inspector wears skirts. Obviously, that's. Uh, uh, rife with opportunities to uh, make sure that you call her big breasts or biggie or whatever uh, so that's i enjoy that because it's also a little view into what hong kong cinema was doing and what it was like at this uh, at this point uh, I, I wanted to get back on and expand on i suppose my thoughts on the the action and the wire stuff and how that combines i think it runs literally too long per shot sometimes so while the action is very clear it is a very exciting it gets a bit sluggish as the action directors uh, portray these fights between david Wu and the blood demon or blood devil so the ingredients are there to make it like a frenzied supernatural time but it, it was a bit too sluggish and slow and clarity is good but if you don't have just the right compelling pace and momentum to these uh, battles which you know, Iceman Cometh probably got very correctly. That Choi Hak working with Ching Sudong often got correctly. It tells, it, it gives away that the movie isn't um, able to play with the big boys as well. And that that took me out of the movie a little bit. But then again, it, it it's over before you know it and all of that. So, um, it, so it isn't truly distracting. But um, there, there's a little lesson here, I suppose, that this should have been ever so slightly tighter. And the action could have been ever so slightly more exciting uh but but as staged it isn't uh you know groundbreaking or anything it's indicative of what happens after a big movie happens that three or four productions later on people are gonna try it uh, makers are gonna try it and that's where this movie comes in it's not standing there next to a chinese ghost story or iceman cometh and can rival it or anything well, one one thing that got me really nervous watching this film was uh, towards the end when they were running up the water slide. <laughs> it's just one of those things where I was like, dude, they're going to slip. Are they going to slip? And then when they turn on the water, I was like, oh, my God, they're going to slip. They're going to slip. I, I'm not saying that this came out personal experience. I just get really nervous when I watch things like this. It's like, they're going to he's running up the damn water slide. That was the only thing that popped out. I mean, the other things, it's just very typical sort of 90s, early 90s action. And I kind of wish they go back to that kind of practical shooting of action these days I'm, I'm a bit nostalgic for it but i'm not saying to this film particularly because this film nothing really jumps out at me particularly about this film except maybe the soft heart guys other than that no i mean the, the water slides i'm just saying i just want to yeah i just want people to appreciate that the water slide run it's harder than it looks they, they run for a bit uh, and they don't uh, chop up the shots either so, you know, presumably uh, da- David Wu and the uh, the actor who plays the Blood Demon uh, uh, under the mask and all of that, they had to run for a while on that thing. And yeah, and yeah, yeah. They, they, they had a, they had a, they had speed doing it. So, 
Yeah, I think they're doing a half speed, and I think at one point when they're sliding down on a wide shot, you can tell that David Wu isn't actually carrying a human child. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Even on the murky laser disc print, uh, these uh, things stand out. But uh, yeah, I mean, they, they put that uh, child through uh, through a lot. But uh, maybe enough was enough by 1990. No, you're not getting her. <laughs> you're not getting her up on that water slide. Uh, she, she's happy to uh, to actually use the ride when the park is open, but not for the movie. So we've already damaged this child enough. So anything you notice in the action, Paul, like into what I was talking about, that it isn't this highly, greatly paced, intense showcase reaction or effects or that didn't uh, pop out uh, and stand out for you in terms of the what's happening technically uh this it's it's rife with problems i would say i mean just from the opening scene there's they they seem to put the camera on top of a truck or a bus and it's like following the car and it's like super shaky. You can't really, it's like, what, what, what is the purpose of, of that kind of shot? I mean, it was so bad, but it, I guess it was like, that's what they got. They got to use it. And I think um, Kevin had mentioned, you know, when this film ends, it just kind of ends. I mean, normally with this kind of narrative, you usually have the, the uh, characters from the past, getting back to the past, right? Cause uh, you don't leave them stuck in, in the modern era, but no, they just, I don't know, they run out of money. It just... Well, it's because he didn't time travel. He, he sort of like ran Vinko, right? I think that's what happened for him. And, and not even a big soft hard kids uh, joke at the end. We got the immortality pearl now, haha, bitches. You know, <laughs> not even that. So. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a there's a scene toward us in the middle where they're out. It, it's the same scene where I think they play the the Ghostbusters riff. They're kind of out looking for something in some woods somewhere and they got these these weird gadgets and then they kind of pull an evil dead moment where they use the camera to like track really fast it kind of like zooms up to one of the vehicles or something and they do it twice and it you know it's giving you the effect like oh there's a presence or there's a creature coming for them or something and the sound effect they use is exactly the sound effect from the Star Wars trench run. If you listen to it, it's it's they just ripped that right off and they use it and it's the same sound, same sound effects. There's nothing there. Nothing comes of it. You know, nobody gets attacked or anything as would happen in an, in an Evil Dead sequence. Why did they do it? It's a, it's a, there, there are moments like that that just make you go, is that just the footage they had and they kind of had to use it? So a lot of it feels like they just went out and grabbed stuff and maybe it wasn't the best stuff that they grabbed, but they didn't want to reshoot. So they just kind of kept it in. They even have Ghostbusters style gag, um, uh, props and what have you. Like they have these uh, these uh, scanners and what have you. And Billy Lau looks to be carrying one of those packs that they have on their backs. Uh, but yeah. it's not yeah. like it turns into, like we're wacky electricians, but we've also made this. There's a, there's a couple of moments too where technically I was kind of, you know, taken aback and impressed um, in the early scene when they're all with the orchestra, they're kind of having this camp out in the woods. Um, there's a scene where they're, they kind of pull back and they're showing people around the campfire from a distance and they're, there are these trees in the way, and then the camera just kind of like goes up and up and up and up, and it was either a really big crane that they had, or they put it on a helicopter or something. I don't know, but it was impressive because it goes up and up and up and kind of is, is showing this almost overhead shot at a point, and then later it brings it back down. 
So there was stuff that I was looking at going, wow, that's impressive. And then other stuff I was going like, wow, why, why did they use that? <laughs> that looks really bad. And I think in terms of the choreography, there was nothing that was, it was overly impressive. But as Kevin was alluding to, you know, some of the stuff they do with practical effects, um, especially the blood demon, you know, he's got this kind of uh, this prosthetic on his head um, that pulses sometimes. And it's got like these veins and you look at stuff like that. And some people might look at that and go, Oh, that's, you know, very indicative of the era and it doesn't look great by today's standards, but it's still for me, the practicality of it works on the screen. Whereas you compare that with this big sort of blobulous computer generated alien, like we get in the Weisley's mysterious file. And I just go, no, that's just, it doesn't hold up at all for me. Um, maybe that's personal taste, but I, I would much rather go back and see a movie that's really going into overdrive with the creativity. And I think the best example is, is of course, in, in the seventh curse, you get, you know, the, the weird, just sort of baby worm things and you get yes. the, 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 the fighting skeleton ancestor. And does it always work? No. Does it look fake sometimes? Yeah. But there's so much energy and cre creativity going into that in in some of the camera work and some of the setup that it still is very entertaining versus the very sort of flat cg stuff that just you know it, it doesn't it doesn't really work on on the screen you know tentacle fights are something that come up in a lot of these kinds of films where a creature comes out with lots of tentacles and in, in mysterious file you know the, there's a scene where like alman wong i think shoots tentacles out of her fingers and Andy Lau has to fight the tentacles he pulls a sword out of his belt and that's something you'd see in the in a in a movie from this era where they'd have these big rubber prosthetics right it would still hold up but in something it, when it's like CG it's like the, it the actor doesn't really look like he's fighting anything and connecting with anything and it just looks like there's no real physicality to it so a film like this um it's not the most dynamic fight scenes you're going to see but there's still a physicality to them. I, I think my favorite sequence is when David Wu ends up on the film set and they're doing a, a sequence, a fight sequence, and he thinks it's real. And then he like goes in and starts beating up all the stuntmen and these guys on wires. And so that that was like a moment of create, you know, creativity where I thought, yeah, you know, they're they're trying for something here. It's 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 not going to be the best thing you've seen from the era. But they were trying, and, it, and that effort still comes across to me. My final note, and by the way, you're not alone in thinking that the older physical stuff is uh, often more creative and a lot more uh, present and uh, a lot more entertaining. I mean, heck, even look back to a Chinese ghost story. When the tentacle worm thing is surrounding the house that Leslie Chung and Joey Wong are in, and that, that that's a big thing that's on the set and spinning around, and then Wu Ma I think jumps in and slices it, and uh, a lot of that is uh, present there for the actors to react uh, to. And that was 1987, so uh, doesn't uh, it, it isn't quaint? It's actually more skillful, as a matter of fact, in uh, in some movies cases. Uh, my final note was a little funny bit where it's not even a gag, but uh, but I laughed at it. At one point, Billy Lau, they they probably don't know what David Wu's character is. They they think he might be a mental patient, so he goes to call the mental hospital. Then he just picks up the phone and like, mental hospital, have you had someone run away? No, okay, bye. <laughs> 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 he gets through to the right person right away. He doesn't even dilate. He just 
punches uh, punches the phone and uh you know he, he gets his answer the movie gets his answer and then we're off and running so <laughs> uh, but uh, otherwise uh, i've uh, concluded my notes so let's throw over to kevin uh, anything else you want to say uh, any particular positive or negative thing to say about david Wu as an actor or he's one of those that he's in movies and that's fine david Wu is kind of one of those guys who just like you know you think they everyone wants to make him a thing but the thing is he's never going to be a thing and they kept making him into a thing until he's no longer a thing until like Ikin chan came up with something right until they found another person that they want to try make into a thing so you know i never disliked david Wu that much but i never really thought of him as a, as a great actor but you know it, the movie is fine he's fine everything is very 90s hong kong cinema which means i'm already started forgetting about it so, you know, it's okay. Yeah, the thing is, Wesley Pistier's file, I will hate that movie with vengeance and for the rest of my life. Because <laughs> that movie's terrible. <laughs> this one, it's okay. I mean, it's not terrible. It's not very good. But I'll just forget about it. It's fine. I like the little uh, bit, by the way, I forgot to um, say, when uh, Wisely is... Um, he he gets called on by Jan Lam, I think. Like, how can we trust that uh, what you're explaining to us is uh, is correct? And then he grabs a big big row of his books well i've written fiction before <laughs> i was like good one wisely you've written fiction that that, that doesn't answer <laughs> the question <laughs> why we should believe you uh to provide like advice to deal with this real situation and then he brings up the laser discs uh, too so whether they played the book thing for a gag or not i don't know but uh, i thought that was funny <laughs> like uh, yes you, you you haven't written factual books you've written fiction so can you please answer my question? <laughs> uh, so, anyway, um, Paul, anything else you want to say before we do the availability? Um, I mean, it's, uh, you know, kind of to Kevin's point, it's a pretty easily forgettable film, um, unless you're somebody who can glean some of the nostalgia out of it. Um, it's not going to make probably any best of lists. It does have a huge cast of cameos, though. I guess, uh, you know, Manfred Wong was calling in a lot of favors. Um, during production because you've got, you know, people like Lawrence Chang, Alfred Chung, uh, Amy Yip, as we mentioned, Simon Loy, um, very, a very young, um, uh, Sandy Lamb and Andy Hoy show up and have like no dialogue because they're so young at the time. They were just, you know, given some, given some screen presence. Um, but yeah, I mean, just try to enjoy it. Look for the head scratching moments. I mean, there's a scene towards the end in the final act when they're trying to, draw the uh the blood demon out and they're using music to do so this musical theme that they've come across and so they're getting the orchestra to play it which and they when they play it it's this really weird synth score that wouldn't sound like an orchestra you know it's like a guy in his basement composing a synth score but they have the orchestra guys actors sitting there pretending to play um so that doesn't really mesh up but um one of the things they do is they take the time traveler guy David Wu and they're like here play the drums because why not you know it's that that makes sense if you can go into it understanding that that's the kind of movie that it's going to be don't take it seriously try to look past some of the bad cinematography moments and some of the things they're kind of riffing on and and just look to some of the cheesiness and silliness of it and I think it'll be you'll have a fine time and uh, you'll forget about it the next day 
Very cool. Well, as for availability, it was put out on VHS and Laserdisc by Ocean Shores in Hong Kong and in a cropped uh, subtitled transfer. But um, it uh, was not... Uh, you, you could obviously still read the subtitles quite clearly. It did have a US DVD from Brentwood, which paired this movie up with uh, another supernatural movie called Return of the Evil Fox. Uh, but specifications indicate that they just slapped the same cropped transfer on DVD, but at least it makes it available, both uh, new and second-hand at reasonable prices, and you get two movies for the price of one. Um, whether it's a legit thing to even slap an old transfer on a US DVD like that, can't say. I think Brentwood are a legit company, but maybe it varies from release to release, but uh, at least you can get it, and uh, that's the point. Anyway, uh, we are done with the Wisely Wesley coverage because we're not going to do an episode-by-episode breakdown of the Sean Yu series or whatever because uh, I wouldn't be able to. uh, I mean, it might be very, very good, but I'm not the kind of guy who uh, has the stamina to uh, break down 40 episodes or 20 episodes. So um, we're going to let you listeners seek that out for yourself because I've heard from several sources, both you guys and other sources, that um, it's quite good. So uh, Sean Yu might be the Wisely we've been looking for. I never said that. <laughs> Fake news. Fake news, Ken. <laughs> but uh, still, uh, that's the media where we're getting, uh, you know, episodic stuff. TV. You know, well, in this case, it was um, streaming only. I don't think it was uh, for a television network, but it was uh, for online streaming. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Wisely lives on in that form currently. So we'll see what happens in the future. But uh, in the meantime, uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Relevant show links will be available in the show post and social media links as well. But you can always go to the website and click the handy buttons at the top of it to access our social media and uh, subscribe to our iTunes feed and uh, various other things. So I'm going to throw over to the guys to plug away as they like. So uh, what do you want to talk of, uh, Paul, if not your uh, podcast archive? You guys' podcast archive. Yeah, it's uh, you can find it over at uh, uh, East Screen, West Screen, over at Comcast.com. And uh, like I said, no new content for a while, uh, but maybe some stuff in the future. Uh, time and technology will tell. Well, we, we hope for the best because I know you guys, guys have recorded uh, some stuff. So I hope you can um, get it out. And uh, do consider USBs or CDRs in the mail. I think that's what they did when the first podcast ever came out. I'm just I'm, I'm going, I'm going with that theory. Steve Jobs mailed out each and every podcast himself. So Order your, order your cassette tapes now. Yeah, exactly. Heck, even uh, it's, it's not a podcast. But once... Um, Upon a time, a Criterion Collection, uh, they had Laserdisc releases of a few of the James Bond movies, like the three first, or at least uh, From Russia with Love and Goldfinger. They did commentaries for them, but they were a bit lewd. They were a bit rude in certain uh, sections. And essentially, I think the Fleming Foundation or the James Bond people said that, uh, no, we don't want makers to uh, say vaguely sexist and homophobic remarks on these commentaries. So they you need to repress this and leave those commentaries out but criterion were allowed to still uh, sell these commentaries by mail on cassette tapes so <laughs> i mean we're talking laser discs obviously uh, it's a while ago now so people could get the band james bond commentaries um, on cassette tape from criterion and then they re-recorded them and they were a bit more clean clean and not as uh, lewd as um, uh, as they were so 
I remember it was essentially one moment, uh, like one of the editors of of James of the James Bond franchise uh, there in the sixties. He commented on Sean Connery, one of his entrances in the movies, like, uh, and he says Sean could walk into a room and fuck anyone he liked. <laughs> they didn't like that kind of language, the Fleming people. <laughs> so, so out it went. Anyway, over to you, Kevin. Uh, what do you want to plug? Uh, you didn't throw out the URL for your subtitling uh, subtitling uh, company. So, if you like, you can do so. Oh yes, I have a company called Zakaten Media. Is that A K K A T E N Media? We offer film translation, uh, well, translation work of uh, film-related materials. Of course, if you got anything else, you can throw it our way as well. I'm at we're at zakatenmedia.com. Zakatenmedia.com. I am also uh, on social media. You can find me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock, and that's it. I think. Well, there's also Asian cinema, but I haven't updated that in, in ages. So there is no cinema to update <laughs> yes there is no cinema to update so yes excellent well uh, thank you guys for um helping me to uh, start off this little mini series and obviously helping me to conclude it as well because i wanted to uh, get a few more wisely ventures uh, here in the podcast can if you will and uh, it wasn't my intention to bring up bad memories because i had i had no real expectations of wesley's mysterious files but uh, it's now uh done with and it doesn't need to be watched again or spoken of again but um i um i thank you for your patience and i thank you for your participation guys because uh you always bring a a perspective that um i'm not capable of um communicating so uh, thank you paul and kevin for your wisdom your andy lau wesley wisdom Cue uncomfortable silence. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Yes. (laughs) All right. I've been Kenneth B. And with me was uh, Paul Fox of the East Green West Green podcast. So uh, say goodbye, Paul. Goodbye. And with me was Kevin Ma as well, who said bye. So let's, uh, let's go out on that. So thank you, everybody.